Welcome to Machine Learning. This is David Nishimoto. Um, this week's been pretty busy. I actually had a lot I got accomplished in a short period of time. And uh, a lot of that's just due to constant uh, practice programming and, and thinking about how the machine works and, and, uh, and uh, object-oriented programming. And, um, so, uh, today I'm gonna, I wanna talk about uh, Flutter again and then I wanna talk about uh, uh, Comma AI, uh, which is kind of an exciting uh, technology. And uh, it's bringing low-cost uh, self-driving cars and uh, to the market uh, through the Comma 2 device, which uh, you plug into uh, driver assist module and then it controls the steering and uh, you can get it to control the braking also. Um, I'll talk about that towards uh, the latter part of my presentation. So going to Flutter, uh, the loading of, uh, of a drop-down button, I'm going to talk a little bit about the process of doing that. So the way you would do that is they have what they call a future builder. And what the future builder does is that you, it has a number of parameters. And one is um, the uh, future, which is going to point to, you reference your, your future function, uh, which is calling the get. So uh, you have your HTTP get and uh, it's of a particular class type. Um, it's a generic class type. And it's going to uh, return back that class or collection of uh, classes. And uh, it will do so as a future. And so uh, you bind that to your future builder. So the future builder, I guess maybe high level, is going to get the results back from the asynchronous get future. And then inside of that, you're gonna have another parameter, uh, which is going to take that uh, result and it's going to map it to uh, a particular uh, widget. Now in this case, what we want to do is have it map to a drop-down button item. And the drop-down button item has uh, a display text and it also has a class. So every item in the drop-down button is going to be a class. It's going to link to a class. And that's very nice so when you do a selection, uh, it will then you can have a variable of that class type, call it underscore current, which is going to point to the current selected class. And uh, now that you have those classes, uh, it uh, will, you can use that to send puts or, or uh, post messages back to the server with that class information. And uh, that's really great so you don't you don't end up in parameter uh, purgatory 
you know, where you're, you're trying to memorize all these parameters, you have long lists of parameters, you just pass classes. And it's a lot simpler way of dealing with the interface. Um, so once you have that future builder uh, set up, it then is going to return back a, a collection of widgets, and then you would bind that in to uh, your button. So then it would return the button, and then you would uh, add that button to uh, that uh, drop down button to your to your form and then from the form it's going to use the set state uh, inside of the widget to change so you'll have an on change event and whenever the user clicks it it's going to cause the current uh, to point to the value of the and the value would be of that class type and so the selected value would be of that class type and so now current set state will then run and then it will re-render re, re and uh, that's, so uh, you would set up your future builder in your init state so you'd have override init state and then in there you would make your call to the future builder and then you could put it in uh, return it into a a list of widgets call it uh, form widget list or something like that and put it in that collection and then use add that uh, uh, form widget list as children to your form uh, that you're going to return on your stateful uh, widget and that would be in the state of object of the stateful widget so this is how you kind of have to think when you're programming with Flutter is where you are in the hierarchy and uh, and kind of like what's happening with the state machine uh, as far as asynchronous is concerned and where to, to do initializations. Um, and it works fine unless you use inherited widgets like I do uh, with the API widget. And in that case, what you want to do is uh, you don't use a future builder. You would uh, load your list asynchronously in the build, and uh, and then you would make a call with a list dot map. Uh, give it the class of um, of uh, drop down item, and then map that directly the the value directly into the. Uh, drop-down widget using the map function and then uh, take that and build your drop-down button and then add that drop-down button to your form widget list and then add that form widget list to your form so once you have your form it's kind of stacked uh, you can think of like uh, the, the, uh, uh, the way you're entering the widgets into your list will be the way they're displayed um, in the form. So the last widget in will be at the bottom. And uh, then, you know, the widgets themselves handle all the behavior, so they have the callback, the gesture technologies, etc. All that is handled by the widget itself, so all contained within the object. It's super nice that way. And, uh, 
and then uh, you can t you can test the behavior. And what I and what I did to test the behavior is I just had a little counter, so every I could watch how many times uh, that events were happening. So when I did change the selection in my drop down button, I noticed that my counter incremented when I uh, when I did a uh, button click. I could see that uh, it detected the uh, on tap or on pressed uh, event and uh, sent a, a click event there, uh, which did a set state and the set state then caused it to re-render. So in my case, what I do is every time uh, it comes through, I reload all the widgets. So into the widget list, and then I send that to the form. Uh, whereas in the builder, uh, it you would have it done in the knit state. It would build those widgets one time, and then it would send it to the form as a uh, structure. And and uh, the the reason why I do it the way I do is uh, because I have to do the initialization in the build because the inherited widget cannot be done in the init state because you get an error that uh, it doesn't know which came first whether the, the inherited widget came first before the other widget that you're trying to load and so there's there's a problem there so it, it recommends you put it in the build state so then you have to use some flags for controlling uh, that it's loaded or not loaded and uh, then you do a check for if the list has uh, been populated, if it's not been populated, then put up your uh, circular po progress uh, indicator, and uh, that then it'll display this, the uh, revolving circle until the data loads. And I guess if if it never loads, then it just sits there and spins forever. So that would be probably the disadvantage of that indicator is if you had a problem. But I, I tend to see that if you can do the try-catch uh, in your code, which I recommend you do, uh, and then you can catch those exceptions and propagate the error propagate upward the chain to the parent and then catch those uh, display messages if there was a problem connecting to the server or there was uh, some sort of parsing problem that occurred. So that's a, kind of like, a, in a nutshell, how to deal with a, a dynamic list that you're loading and how, the, uh, how to do selection on a form. Um, the form has a, has a state um, and uh, you have to set it up with a key and then you, you bind that when you create the form. Um, it looks just like another widget um, I haven't changed, I didn't play around too much with the formatting. Imagine there's a way to make it look kind of like a dialogue. Uh, but the way I had it just was just playing with the data. So this is like day five. I need to update my thing, but day five of programming in Flutter. And uh, been pretty satisfied with it. I mean, it took a little while to figure out what was going on with the async. Uh, but the once you realize that, that things have to happen at a certain stage, then you kind of get those recipes in your head. Um, 
one other thing that I'm looking at is kind of trying to create a master detail or page or something that looks like a spa. So I have the same theme. And the way it looks like it's doing that is uh, when it, you have a um, you have a widget that's displaying, whether it's a, a drawer that pops out, you click on an item, and then there's a, a there's a routing widget um, that and an overlay, and basically what it does is it puts that box. Uh, it keeps the the main uh, widget displayed and then you overlay your incoming widget and position it onto the screen and display it through the routing and um, and then so that that allows you to create uh, you can create a master detail where let's say 30% is the is the detail uh, or, it's, or it's the master list and then the 70% of the screen is uh, your detailed display of the item that you selected and that's really great for tablets like if you've got a you know, long list and you're, you're selecting through you click on that and you can display it in the, in the master page um, where you've got kind of like a navigator view controller behavior uh, you would have a list that you select from and then there would be an indicator that there's additional details. You click on that detail indicator, and then uh, uh, it would overlay the detail page. And that way, you don't lose your scaffolding. You'd have your still you'd have your app title, and, uh, and that would be displayed. So that'd be really nice that way when you do your presentation. Um, it's interesting, There's, I'm looking for a book that kind of focused more on how to do web development uh, using Flutter. And I, you know, right now you look at uh, React, there's literally hundreds of jobs for React uh, in, the, in the Silicon Slopes area. And people are really interested in hiring people with React knowledge. A lot of uh, universities and tech schools are training students on how to program in React and React Native. But I'll tell you, Flutter's already won the battle against React. This uh, programmable widgets is reusable. It's component-based. Uh, you can debug it. There, Everything you need is described in the widget itself and um, so you can isolate and, and develop these widgets and you can import different libraries so you could buy other widgets and use them and that's really the power I think Microsoft really really missed the boat by not realizing that what propelled them into success was ActiveX ActiveX was an incredible, incredible product uh, technology because what it allowed it to do, developers to do, was make money. Uh, and uh, so there were lots of people building ActiveX components. Uh, you could search the uh, internet for a component, read about what that component could do, and, uh, and then for a few hundred dollars buy it and 
and if it didn't, you could contact the developer and, uh, and uh, uh, tell them what the problem was and then get a patch fix and, and uh, you know, get, get that component uh, implemented again and, and on your way. And I remember uh, being on a uh, Visual Basic project, which is why I love Flutter is because I, I, I love Visual Basic. It was one of the best products Microsoft ever built. And uh, we, we had a grid and we wanted to, uh, we had purchased this grid and it, it could do a lot of really cool things. Um, and, uh, but it was an ActiveX component that was put in and so you just include your ActiveX component and then you drag and drop it into your uh, form and then you can program to that component. You can send parameters to it and then you have to learn the events of that component and uh, and then uh, it, it had a predictable behaviors. And when it, so it, for the most part, I liked the component when it was just really basic Got, some developers got kind of fancy with the component and made it uh, unstable because they didn't have the events understood well. And that's one of the big disadvantages of event programming is that you, if you can interrupt the events uh, inappropriately, you can get unexpected results. But uh, one of the things that I like about Flutter is it doesn't have... Uh, complex event sequence hierarchies. In other words, you know, you don't have to guess which event occurs before another event. You know the init state event occurs before the build event. You know that the set state event occurs before the build event. And uh, it invokes that event. And so, because it's a relatively small hierarchy of event Event, uh, dependency um, I think it's going to be less confusing for developers to integrate other packages into uh, Flutter and so I'm looking at uh, things like uh, chart chart uh, components I want to get uh, maybe some machine learning components a graphic component uh, maybe a natural language processing component. And uh, those are the things I'm interested in. Uh, machine learning, possibly, to, um, I'm not sure where I can put the machine learning in. I have to really think about, you know, how machine learning fits into business, uh, especially when it comes to mobile. Though where I've seen this being used is natural language processing and uh, object recognition. And in my case, what I'm, what I'm building right now, I don't need object recognition. Uh, I may need some language, natural language processing, and I would use that as like a replacement to search, where they could just uh, you know ask uh, ask for a certain item instead of having to tap. Um, search, you know, natural language, converts that natural language request into a search pattern, and then, uh, and then produce results that way. So it'll be very simple that way. Um, 
but other than that, I, I don't really see much of an application for machine learning in my application. So I'm not sure it's worth all the hassle just to get a natural language search, but it might be. It might save a few seconds and it might make the experience for the user better. And so if it does, then, then that's something that I'll explore. The graphics is going to be very important. Um, augmented reality. Augmented reality in mobile, I think, is definitely something that is very popular. Um, maybe I could take uh, the uh, I could take the graphic and transfer that into three-dimensional space and uh, show a three three D object on my device and have it capable of rotating and translating that device or that object in 3D space and see that on my phone. That might be something that might be interesting. Uh, that I could, you know, have some sort of uh, way to interact with it. Um, but um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that would, uh, you know, it depends on how fast it can communicate the story. So if 3D is dealing with spatial data, then, um, then it's going to communicate the story better than 2D. It, if it's just communicating in terms of time, unless it's uh, dimensional time where you have multiple years or you're segmenting by quarters, months into quarters, into year, or something like that, it's going to be more difficult to understand that in 3D. In fact, I don't think you'll get much value by moving it to 3D over 2D. Um, it has to be something where you want to look at the data from different dimensions. Uh, that will then facilitate 3D because you can do a rotation and that could represent a new domain dimension. And you can see your data through multiple dimensions and get a better understanding of what's happening. So your data should tell a story. Now that's also what uh, deep learning does is it finds function and, uh, and that finding that function and drawing conclusions based on that function could be useful. Uh, so in the case of data trends, maybe the function is that it finds is over expenditure or increased uh, uh, performance risk or uh, inconsistency with previous performance. Something that uh, the deep learning could identify that could be useful to business. And, that, and that, that is kind of the challenge of data science is trying to find you know, that uh, where there's a good signal, good correlation, good prediction, and uh, so signal or the predictive classifier results are useful and um, one that I saw this this week that was kind of fascinating when we talk about I'm going to jump now to to deep learning um, algorithm where there NASA is using uh, deep learning to study astrophysics simulations and uh, one I read about this week that I thought was kind of interesting was they did a simulation of 
they ran the deep learning against the simulation on the, what the universe looked like. And they, they were trying to figure out uh, models. So there's these physics models, which I, I don't understand, but they, they just exist. They're functions that, that uh, uh, based on uh, mass, plasma, gravity, uh, the way they feel that the universe would have distributed the, the matter, they reflect that in equations and then they model it. And, the, and then they, they go out and try to take those models and see if they match uh, data in the universe that they're gathering, either maybe through Hubble or, or other sensors that they're gathering data, and see if these models match up. And uh, so they come up with these models and they represent the way the universe would look. Well, then they took uh, deep learning and applied that same technology to the simulation, and deep learning then began to make predictions of what the universe looked like. And in the astrophysics, it was about 99% accurate to what the simulation was running, but at a very uh, substantially faster capability to produce that simulation like two billion times faster so it's like magnitudes faster to use the deep learning and it's very accurate so then uh, they, they they were like well this is really good I mean you know we've improved efficiency we're getting relatively very very good accuracy on the astrophysics I wonder if what would happen if we start taking things away from the model, like if we take dark matter away, or we change the gravity uh, coefficients, or we introduce uh, additional factors that we may you know, not have thought of, and watch what happens with the simulation. And they found that the simulation reacted uh, to those changes. Now. They didn't give a, the article didn't give a, uh, a response of whether or not the deep learning reactions were correct, but the fact that it did change could introduce areas of research where other simulations could be run to study uh, the math behind why the deep learning changed uh, according to theory of dark matter. So if you don't believe in dark matter and dark energy, I, I'm with you. I, I don't think they exist. I mean, they're really strange phenomena. I mean, that's the, the, the dark energy suggests that, you know, they're, that, uh, what, 23% of the universe is dark matter, and then there's a large 60-some percent is dark energy. And you don't see that. It's not measurable. But it's just because of the topology of the universe, they have to exist according to their equations. And so uh, it's kind of like a fudge factor. It just works according to their uh, theories and math. Um, but as far as verifiability, the only way that they verified possibly dark matter was uh, Einstein's gravitational lens, you know, where the light bent between two, two uh around something out in space uh, around a, a ma uh, area that had high gravitational mass and so they said well hey that must mean that uh, there's dark matter there and 
And then I've seen models of the universe where they show the distribution of the different star clusters and galaxies and they say, you know, what explains this is that we have this dark matter that's underlying all of the universe. But um, I don't think dark matter exists. I think plasma exists. I think electricity exists in the universe, but dark matter, it's just hard for me to accept. But that's for you to determine. Um, so now the, the uh, let's switch to uh, comma the uh, self-driving car idea. So I listened to George Holtz, and he's a smart guy. He's a hacker, and he uh, he knows how to write to the machine. He understands how the machine works, and it's really fun to listen to him talk. And some of it you understand, some of it don't. Um, he seems to have a good understanding of uh, how machines learn, and uh, he has he pointed out when I listened to him that. When you talk about machines having a level two, three, four, and five, he said that's that's a business proposition. That's a business stratification. That's tied to liability. So he says they're all the same. So all the um, the self-driving technologies are all the same. There's no stratification capability there. Um, so he he said that basically what you have is you have levels of accuracy. And so by improving accuracy, at some point you're gonna have no fatalities and you're gonna be at a, uh, no fatalities and no accidents and you're gonna be able to claim level five capability. But um, so in his mind, uh, you start off with hardware, hardware's capable of processing the software fast enough that it can make decisions or millions, thousands of decisions, millions of decisions, and those decisions then uh, will have predictable results. And if those results uh, have our, the way humans uh, expect cars to drive, and they don't drive uh, you know, in a behavior that can cause other accidents, then we'll say that that's a level five. Uh, and so, you know, the, I, I think what he's trying to say is that in time, um, the hardware will be fast enough and the software will be good enough that, um, that the car will just be an extension of the computer. So, you know, I can see cars becoming more of a computer or if you would say robots are computers and, you know, robots definitely can do lots of automations. Cars are, are automated, moving automated robots. And so therefore the car could become the computer. And, uh, you know, we don't take our handheld device and plug it into a slot and let it drive the car. But basically what Comma 2 is, is it's a portable uh, computer. It plugs into your driver assist port. Um, it, you download software onto that device. And then it, it uh, you drive around for about 16 minutes. It learns. Uh, it learns, gets oriented, and then it starts to uh, it starts to record and broadcast uh, driving patterns, and uh, you know it, it doesn't do lane changes for you. It it will monitor you as you make lane changes and and uh, assess your driving behavior. Um, 
but uh, it basically will just drive on the road. Um, you know, if you if you're going to a destination, you need to make a change. It'll indicate that you need to make the lane change. You take over, you make the lane change, and, and exit off the freeway or, or off the road. Um, it's watching the cars in front of you. It's recognizing what they are. It's recognizing pedestrians. Uh, and uh, it's doing collision avoidance. And the amazing thing is that this system is only like $1,500, but you have to install it. And so it has ports that you plug into the driver assistant. You get access to the GPS so it knows where you are. Um, it plugs into, it has a wire that you connect into uh, your uh, access panel for the drivers, the, your computer module. So basically plugs into the computer module. And uh, this device sends computer codes that, um, that the car understands and it uh, is activated by cruise, your cruise control. So you do your set on the cruise control and uh, then it takes over and it, it will drive your, your car. And it, it learns from the way you drive uh, and then it, uh, um, uh, then it, it will also drive and transmit that information back to the server. And so those are, are really great uh, capabilities that it provides. Um, one of the things I really like about it is that George was saying that he wanted to uh, put the, uh, you know, he says that there's a lot of politics uh, to the OEM cars dealers or, or manufacturers. And everyone wants to be able to put you know, a self-driving mechanism in there. And, and uh, he, his, his device will connect to, I think, 63 different type of cars. And uh, so now he's providing this low-cost entry to self-driving cars. And I didn't, he didn't provide any stats on how, how much of a safety enhancement it is. But if he, if he was able to show or say that, hey, you can get a tax, uh, tax break by putting this device in your car, I'm sure that there'd be a huge incentive that way for people to plug in and to, especially if you have teenagers, they drive terribly. Not all teenagers drive terribly, but, uh, you know, uh, 16 years of age, just got their driver's permit. Uh, they're highly distracted you know, loud music, uh, not paying attention. Yeah, there's there's a lot of warning signs uh, on on behavior, safe behavior. Well, uh, comma two can watch watch your attentiveness if you get sleepy. It can warn you or pull off to the side of the road until you can you know you're alert, you're paying attention. Uh, and so it, it, it's watching the driver. It's watching their behavior. And that's very important. It can watch the eyes. If the eyes are getting droopy and then it closed, you can tell that they fell asleep. And it can recognize that the person's fallen asleep or if their head starts nodding, uh, that they're, you know, they're, they're tired and they're, you know, they're on the verge of falling asleep, maybe it'll start sounding alarm. Um, other things that it could do, and it doesn't require any expensive LAR LIDAR. LIDAR is very expensive to put in. It, you know, LIDAR creates your 3D voxel map of the world around it, but uh, it doesn't see very far. Where, uh, you know, if you're using image processing, pixel power processing, it can see further. So it can look out, you know, maybe a, a mile in, 
at and seek objects out there. Um, and this lets a better way you get more information. And more information is better because it will uh, result in better decision making, just like deep learning. You know, it's going to result in better decision making. So, um, you know, where's the future of Comma 2? Well, I, I think Comma 2 is really interesting. If I had a uh, if I had a car with driver assist, I would go buy Comma 2 and, and I would install it. It, it fits right uh, near your your uh, mirror and it's uh, just a little box. It's a rectangular box, hangs off your window and, uh, and uh, uh, it uh, can watch you and it can watch the road. I, I would definitely use it. Uh, there's been times where uh, I've been driving and there's been ladders on the road, and I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? And, you know, barely missed that. Or one time I was driving, and it was late at night, and and uh, there was a big block of wood that was on the road, and I, th I thought, well, what is that? I better move over. I better not hit that, you know, thinking that maybe it could be just a piece of cardboard or something. So I moved over, and I saw it was a big block of wood, and I said, boy, that would have, I hit that, that would have caused some damage. Um, you know, you don't know uh, what's going to be on the road. But for the most part, most percentage of the time, there's nothing on the road uh, that can cause uh, harm to your car or to yourself. But on those occasions where you're not paying attention and there is something, uh, maybe comma two would be uh, helpful for uh, obstacle avoidance. And he did bring out an important point. Driving by lane is, is not always going to be the preferred way of doing things. Uh, because you want you want the machine to learn how people drive. And because there's cases where I've watched with Tesla where they had no lanes on the road. And uh, basically Tesla uh, decided, well, I'm going to, it would take the center of the road. And so it took the center of the road and and uh, um, uh, attempted to drive the center of the road into oncoming traffic. And that's more dangerous behavior than, uh, you know, I would have thought that if it couldn't detect a line, that it would take the right side of the road and stay to the right edge, just like a human driver would do. And so uh, those are things that, uh, uh, they've got to go back to the drawing board and, 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 uh, and figure out how to train the neural net to have a preference that way. Now Waymo, they have some sort of algorithm for predicting path and it does uh, uh, obstacle avoidance by having kind of a repulsive force. So if it sees an object there, then it builds kind of a repulsive force that pushes the uh, spline curve around and if that spine, the predicted spline curve going around the object uh, is safe, there's no oncoming traffic, predicted collisions, of, and it's predicting objects around it and which way it's going to go and pred predictable intersections and collisions and so forth. If there's no predictable collision, then it will take that avoidance collision pathway or otherwise it'll stop um, or slow down and avoid that. So those are important those are important features to self-driving cars but his point was is yeah you can't just look at lines to make the decision on where to drive and how to navigate it has to learn like how human beings learn 
and that's by observation. So they're doing lots of observations, setting that up to their server, learning from these uh, uh, observations and behaviors, and then uh, they're doing software updates. So um, seems to be an adaptive environment, and uh, and uh, um, I think it'll be just as good as a Tesla self-driving car with the, ex the exception that it'll have less features and uh, it won't, won't see behind you it won't uh, detect you know that someone's gonna uh, run into the back of you uh, I don't see why it couldn't if it's got a camera looking at your eyes why couldn't it look at uh, obstacles that are rapidly approaching you that look like they might collide into you and give you a warning that you're about ready to get rear-ended or something um, it can't see to the side, but then there could be maybe some uh, peripheral uh, devices that you could attach to your car. Like it, originally they had, uh, I think it was 13 different cameras, gave you a, a, a views of all of everything around the car and then pro send that processor. But you know, maybe for marketing reasons, they only uh, decided to focus on uh, forward driving. Anyway, that's this for this uh, wrap for this week. Uh, talking about Flutter and uh, Comma Two.